The scripture reading for our sermon this morning comes from Luke eleven thirty three 33 to 54. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they kill them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, it's good to see you all today. I uh, hope you're doing well. Hope you enjoyed some time uh, of rest with family and friends. And maybe some of you all thinking like me, like, man, that was uh, a little too much quality time with my family. Not want to share the loofah with my uncle anymore, you know. Um, but if you're visiting for the first time, I want to I welcome you to our church. I'm glad you're here. Um, and uh, you know, right now, we're, we're going through, uh, well, we're continuing the Gospel of Luke, where we left off last time before we started the Advent series, and so we're, we're picking it up again, and you know, where we're at, it's funny, right? How are we starting the new year? We're starting with Jesus. Uh, you, know, you know what a woe is in the Old Testament? It was a curse. 
So we're starting off the new year with Jesus cursing people, right? That's, that's how we're starting it off. Um, but you can, you can notice here, starting in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is kind of turning up the heat, you know? Um, he's getting more straight to the point. Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, we, we've seen how one of the reasons why Jesus had such a big following was because as long as he was healing people, as long as he was feeding them, as long as Jesus could physically better their circumstances, everyone followed him. But the, 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 there comes a point in Jesus' ministry, which is about Luke chapter 11, where, where Jesus is beginning to now sort of lay down his cards. He's beginning to test what people really want. Are they, are they looking for sort of like a, a genie, someone to fulfill their will? Or are they desiring to fulfill his will? Who's the king? Because, because the leader's job is to make sure that, you know, the higher good and the higher goals uh, remain uncompromised because, you know, in any sort of group of people, there's always going to be individual desires and competing motives. And so Jesus Christ in the Bible is called the chief shepherd. That's what he's called. He's called the good shepherd. He's the ultimate leader of the church. He's the ultimate leader of every Christian, of every Family, and how does he lead by his word, which has been recorded for us in scripture? Jesus reveals to us his will, and then he gathers people towards that goal. And the serving under Jesus are under shepherds people who love Jesus, who want to take care of his people, who are called the sheep. And so in scripture, Christians are referred to as sheep, churches are referred to as flocks. In the Old Testament, the under-shepherds were the prophets and the priests and the kings. This would include, in the time of Jesus, in the New Testament, the disciples that followed Jesus. And in our day, these are the pastors and the elders and the deacons and the ministry leaders and even the ministry team members who love and follow and serve Jesus and really, actually, any Christian who is light and salt of the earth. Now, in our text today, Jesus, Jesus, not Jesus. Man. <sighs> gotta get, I was like on vacation for three weeks, so I got to get back into it, you know what I'm saying? Jesus identifies some false shepherds, those who pose as shepherds but are actually harming the flock. Jesus calls them wolves in chapter 10, and he goes after them. Now, this might be a little bit confusing because the Bible says repeatedly to be kind and loving and tender-hearted and merciful and gracious to people. During the Advent sermon series, I spoke of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But then, you know, there are portions in Scripture where we see the prophets saying very controversial things. We see even in the New Testament, John the Baptist doing this, and, and Jesus is often in an argument, actually. And he's sometimes flipping tables and literally whipping people in a frenzy. It doesn't seem very peaceful. Is Jesus being a hypocrite? Well, no, the point is when all else fails, sometimes you've got to be real stern with wolves. You've got to be real stern with even sheep when they're harming the flock. We see this when Jesus rebukes his disciples when they're not in line with his will. 
And it's not because Jesus doesn't love them. It's actually because he does love them and he wants them to see their wrongdoing and turn. But it's also because he loves the flock. He wants to protect the flock from the wolves. With that being said, we're going to take a look at three things in our text. First, we're going to take a look at the principle of origin. Second, the principle of righteousness. And then lastly, the principle of the heart, okay? So first, the principle of the origin. The beginning of our passage, Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. In other words, if you want to see why a certain result is the way it is, you have to go back to its origin, the source. Uh, If the room is dark, you first check the light bulb, then you check the outlet, then you check the electrical panel. You don't just walk around in the dark thinking that somehow it's going to become light again. Let me give an illustration here. When Jenna and I got married in our first apartment, I began uh, to have severe congestion, and I was like sneezing a lot. And at first, Jenna was like, it's because, you know, you don't do your laundry, okay? It's, you're just so filthy, <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it's not my laundry. Um, But we thought it was dust, so we vacuumed. We washed all the clothes, all the sheets, you know, the blankets. We swept, dusted, cleaned the countertops, cannon, every windowsill. But my congestion and my sneezing did not go away. So I Googled it, and the main cause that kept popping up was mold. So one day, I checked every area where moisture could get in. I, I checked the bathrooms, the windowsills, the doors, the sliding doors, sliding windows. I found a little black speck on my window, something that I had missed when I was cleaning everything. And so I called my landlord because, you know, I'm reading the Google and the Internet and, you know, this is scaring the crap out of me. <laughs> so HOA comes in. They did an experiment. And, and they found a colony of mold that went from uh, my windowsill to the wall to the roof and to the other wall on the side of the bathroom. And uh, the person that they brought in uh, went up to the attic and showed me. Even the, the pink uh, insulation was all black. Right? <laughs> so they redid the entire part. And before they finished, I went up into the attic to make sure it was all gone. You see, on the, the mold on the windowsill was just a result of the origin of that mold that was within the walls and the roof and, and the insulation. And unless we address that origin, that source, it would have been disastrous. We would have been blind to the mold. So that, that's, that's one illustration of the principle of origin. Let me just give another example, a positive one. Um, I don't want to end up this illustration on like mold and stuff like that. Okay, so you know, after you guys all know, I'm a huge basketball fan. After the Golden State Warriors, right, won three championships in four years, they had to make some budget cuts, and they cut Andre Iguodala because they thought he was getting old and they thought he was dispensable. After they cut him, the team was terrible. Uh, they signed a young, promising player, right? 
some of you may know, Kelly Oubre, uh, paying him much more than Iguodala would have been. Uh, but they recorded the worst record in the NBA. They missed the playoff twice. And, and what did they do after that? They brought back Andre Iguodala. Right? Some of your old companies right now are calling you back. Right? Would you please come back and work for us? You see, the brass thought their success was purely due to athletic ability and youth. So they had missed the origin of their success, which was not limited to athletic ability, but character and the leadership and culture that was epitomized in Andre Iguodala. He was the eye of the body. Without him, the body was dark. And so you see, this is the principle of the origin. And this applies to the Christian faith, right? Jesus is the light of the world. He says this light should be at the center of our life. In other words, the person of Jesus and everything connected to him, the Bible, his worship, his mission, his love, his grace, is to be at the center of our life for us to be walking in the light. You see, God is the source of love, the source of life, the source of joy, peace, and light. And apart from him, we're going to find ourselves in the darkness. Right? But the sin in us, uh, the pride and the stubbornness in us, uh, we do the unconscionable. We close our eyes. We don't look at the light. We don't look at Jesus. And so there's, there's angst and anger and discontentment. There's ingratitude. Right? We miss a lot of the things that God has given us. And so there's envy in the things that we want. We're complaining. We're bickering. There's no peace, no love, no joy. We're narcissistic. You know, narcissism used to be a very rare trait. Okay, but now it's a very common trait. We're walking in darkness. This is what it is to live apart from the light of Jesus. And this is where the Pharisees are. But let's be honest, we can be like them too. Which brings us to the second point, the principle of righteousness. Now, 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 here's, here's what's shocking to me, okay? Man, these Pharisees, you know, Jesus already knows that these guys are a bunch of haters, okay? And, and so they invite Jesus to come to their dinner. And what's shocking to me is that Jesus goes. Because how many of you would go to a dinner where you're just going to be judged for everything you did and everything you said? You wouldn't show up, right? But this is, this is the grace of Jesus, you know, there's going to be no laughing at this dinner event. There's going to be no hugging, uh, no joking. You got to take off your piercings, okay? You got to cover your tattoos. You got to shave. There's going to be no beer, no sports, no board games, no fun, okay? Someone's going to pray for 15 minutes while the dinner gets cold. The only thing you have to look forward to is a theological debate on, I don't know, worship songs or infant baptism or, you know, credo baptism. That's what this, this dinner event is about. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be painful. You know, I, as a pastor, when people want to meet with me, I always ask them, hey, what's the purpose of this meeting? You know, because if we're going to spend time with each other, with each other we're going to catch up. We're going to pour into each other. You know, we're going to uh, give life to each other. Or are we going to talk about church stuff? <laughs> you know, if we're going to talk about church stuff, I, you know, that's my job, but just send me a Google invite. All right, I need to prepare myself for those things. So Jesus goes. And what happens? They start a theological debate with him. Right? I know some of us in community groups, we're like having fun. We're having the theological debate starts, and, and people all of a sudden, they got to go home. 
<laughs> I got to go. I got some work to do. It's like, you don't have any work to do, right? Um, get the board games out. But, you know, Jesus goes, and, and verse 38, what does it say? It says that uh, the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now, what we see here is the principle of righteousness at work. You see, every single one of us, we've been made in the image of God, and so uh, written on our heart and on our conscience is the principle of the good, the principle of right and wrong. The Bible calls this the principle of righteousness in society and the court of law. It's called justice. And humanity has struggled with this morality since the beginning of time. When Adam and Eve went against God, what happened? Neither of them took responsibility. They avoided the, the principle of origin. They didn't want to go look where, where, where this originated, the sin, but they could not avoid the other principle, the principle of righteousness. They could not ignore their shame and their guilt. So they try to cover themselves, not just with fig leaves, right? Uh, if you read the Genesis 3 narrative event, they blame Satan, they blame each other, they even blamed God for giving each other to them. Right? This, this husband you gave me, this, this wife you gave me. The Pharisees are doing the same thing here. Because as the Pharisees thought about life and what it meant to be a good person and then how one should live, they didn't take any ownership in the world. Right? They thought they were flawless. They said, as long as we do certain things and uh, you know, we'll be good, we'll be righteous, we'll be happy, uh, and, 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 and we won't be weighed down by our regrets. We'll be above criticism. People will accept us. We'll have everyone's approval. And a big part of this, of their righteousness, was outward appearance. Outward appearance. One of those things was outward cleanliness, right? Washing you know, these rituals that they would do, and they would have gotten really along really well with, you know, Mary Kondo probably, uh, to them, cleanliness was holiness, and I know to some of you clean freaks inside, you're nodding your head. It is holiness, Pastor. Uh, it's good, but it's not holiness. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? Uh, but, but, you know, none of us would call ourselves a Pharisee, but there are certain outward appearances that when others don't do the same, we think, man, they shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> That's sinful. Let's take drinking, for example, Okay. For some of us who don't drink, we think, we think drinking is just one step from alcoholism. That's what we think. We say, don't you know, the, the Bible says uh, in, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it, it is not wise. Right? That's what we think. And then for those of us who do drink, we think, you don't drink? Don't you know that in, in Psalm chapter 104, it says, the Lord causes the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth, bread to strengthen, and wine to gladden the heart. So what's the Bible saying? It's saying it's okay to drink, just don't get drunk. <laughs> That's what it's saying. And the drunk person doesn't get to determine if they're drunk or not, okay? That's not how it works, Okay. Uh, let's take another example, okay? Let's take musical style, okay? As a pastor, this is something that's always brought up to me, okay? Uh, someone might say, Pastor, I like hymns, you know? I'm more old school, and these new songs with all the bells and whistles, they're too modern. They, they sound like secular music. 
But actually, you know, hymns back then were modern too. Actually, before the piano, there were just string instruments. The piano was introduced into worship, you know, in the 19th century. And people back then pushed back against the piano because they believed it was modern. But those who like modern songs might say, you know, these old school songs, they lack emotion. You know, it's the same sort of, uh, same sort of melody. Uh, and there are too many big words like redemption and justification. You know, it's like, I don't know what these words mean. But the Bible doesn't just speak to our emotions. Right? There is a depth of context and history and literature and vocabulary that that God wants us to know you know imagine talking to you know someone you're dating and 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 they're talking about what they're passionate about maybe it's art okay and they're talking about impressionism okay and and you say you know what I I don't know what that means I don't care about that it's not going to fly you got to go to museums with them and all sorts of art museums I'm not speaking out of personal experience. I'm just saying, if that's the case, that's what happens, all right? You see, God never wants us to compromise either. Who he is in in the beauty and depth of of his word and emotional passion. A a song should stir you, right? Uh, uh, The the, the Bible should stir you, not just movies and, you know, um, Hollywood. So, so, the first point I want to say is that, you know, we, we've, we've got to not judge each other where God has not spoken. None of it is, is more righteous than the other. Actually, God has given us a lot of objective righteous things that we should be concerned about other than musical style, like loving each other. How about that one? <laughs> Forgiving each other. Um, loving the poor. Being generous. Praying for one another, right? Let's, let's stick with these. But let me just give one last illustration to show how this principle of righteousness works. Right? Imagine a wedding day. Everyone's decked out. The bride is uh, royal. The groom is sharp for once in his life. Everyone is showing up in suits. Now imagine what people would think if the bride and groom showed up in shorts and flip-flops. What would people think? They'd be appalled, probably. They would judge this couple, probably. But what if this couple was the most compassionate, most integral and generous and sacrificial and humble couple in the world? I hope they wouldn't judge them. But you see, this this principle of righteousness and, and how it manifests in outward appearance, it's in all of us. And this is how the Pharisees thought, right? Jesus, they were thinking holiness was about outward appearance, what people saw, your reputation and what you did, right? How you, how you carried yourself in, in public. And that's why we're always so sensitive what our family members will share. But that's who we are. So they say, Jesus, you guys didn't wash your hands. And you know, the disciples are like, oh, snap, we got to go wash up. And Jesus is like, sit down, <laughs> sit down. And it says here that the Lord said to the Pharisee, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Bam. Dinner party ends right there probably. In other words, religious people... Um, We can get caught up in the superficial rules and preferences and outward appearances, you know. Um, 
I know at my, one of the churches, uh, the, the first church that I, I, I interned at, um, right, I had, everyone had wear a suit and tie. Um, I got ties for my, my birthday, okay, it was, it was terrible. I was like, well, you got for the gift receipt, man? Don't give, you know. Even my mom was shocked when I stopped wearing suits, you know. It, it's just so ingrained in some of us how church should be. When I got my first tattoo, my mom flipped out. She flipped out, right? She was like, well, you know, the, doesn't the Bible say that you shouldn't get tattoos? I said, actually, in Revelation, Jesus has King of Kings tattooed on his thigh. Hmm. Right? She's like, she's like, stop, stop, stop quoting the Bible at me, okay? I'm your mom. Anyways, um, we're consumed with what? At the end, okay, this is, what are we consumed with? We are consumed with controlling our behavior. That's what this is. We are consumed with behavior modification. And what Jesus is saying is you've got it all backwards. It's not about controlling your behavior. He's saying behavior is the effect. It's the result, right? Behavior is what you do. But he's saying you're not getting to the origin. You're not getting to the source. You're cleaning countertops, but you're not getting to the walls where the mold is. You're not getting to the inside of the cup. That's what he literally says. What is the inside of the cup? It's the heart. The heart, that's what controls behavior. If there's jealousy and envy in your heart, what's going to happen? You're going you're to bicker. You're going to complain. Right? If there's um, insecurity and anxiety in your heart, what, what's going to happen? You're, you're just going to be consumed with thinking about making money. Now, I'm going to take this step uh, this, this principle of righteousness just one step further because I, I want to I show that it's not just religious people who struggle with this principle, right? E- even if you don't affirm any of the traditional religions, you have a set, word, set of outward uh, forms, uh, uh, these, these behavior sort of modification principles of righteousness. Maybe it's a specific income. I need to make this. Or it's what you do. I want to do this. Maybe where you live, how you look. Maybe certain personalities or folk are more righteous than others. So certain social circles are more righteous than others. And, and you, maybe you constantly cannot help, but you're, you're always seeking approval and acceptance. Maybe it's from your boss. Maybe it's from your family members. Maybe it's from your friends. You know, you, you need this righteousness. Why are we so consumed with this? Because we believe that these things will give us a certain version of righteousness, approval, and acceptance. What the Bible also calls the good life, the blessed life. But according to Scripture, the blessed life is one who abides in the presence and in the love and in the life of God, which is really ultimately eternity, so there's only so much that we can have here, and so we, we look towards heaven. But in America, what is the blessed life? It's depicted by wealth and power. You know, you know we talk about some people who, whose character is shot, but they're wealthy, and we, we, we can't help but talk about them in a positive light. Don't you think that's strange? Is that strange? You can't separate the two, but we think we can. A blessed life in America is depicted by comfort, not having to do anything. 
not having to serve anyone. It's depicted by sex and romance. What is love? Love it is all feeling, all feeling. That's the principle of righteousness in our culture. Like the Pharisees, we think as long as we have this, we'll be fine, we'll be righteous, we'll be happy, we won't be weighed down by um, our anxieties, our failures, our insecurities, we won't be discontent, people will look at us with acceptance and approval. You see, whether you're irreligious or religious, you're the same. But the thing is, no matter how hard you try to pursue this principle of righteousness, whether in a religious setting, right, some people are searching this at church, maybe they're searching for this, you know, in Buddhism or in New Age or whatever it is, whether you're searching for this in a religious or irreligious setting, we're all coming up empty. Religious or irreligious, we're still struggling with selfishness and anger and anxiety. I mean, my friend, uh, one of my friends is a counselor, and he's just been telling me how much counseling has just, is booming. (laughs) It's crazy. And they're not religious people coming to him. Why is that? Because once again, as the Bible says, to attain the blessed life, to attain this cosmic righteousness, which is above disapproval and shame and regret, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say you need more things? No, the Bible says your heart needs to be addressed. Let's talk about this now, the third principle, the principle of the heart. You see, throughout the Old Testament, this was the eternal dilemma. The greatest war wasn't between nations or people or circumstances. The greatest war, the greatest battle was the struggle in our heart. How our hearts can stay rooted in God and live in his love and his life and his goodness and power and joy. You know, uh, you know, I was talking to my friend the other day and, you know, we were kind of talking about joy and happiness. He's a Christian, but, you know, uh, we we came to the conclusion that, you know, he's like, I don't understand what it means to be joyful, you know, um, because you know God's love. And, and really it's, 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 If you've ever known someone who loves you so much and they're thinking of you, they're writing cards for you, they're texting you, they're praying for you, what does that do for you? It gives you joy, doesn't it? Right? And so so knowing God and his love and his care for you, uh, knowing that you can live out of that joy and that kind of love, that kind of sincere relationship has so much joy that it can carry you in any other broken relationship, you know? I, I remember when Jen and I got married, and, you know, we were fighting a lot, and, 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 and we, we realized that it's because we don't have the love of God to carry us above each other, you know? So we couldn't show each other grace because we, we weren't abiding in Jesus. 
So, so how do we get that joy? How, how, do we, how do we get that blessed life? Well, the Bible says we're prone to sin, we're prone to wander. So God, as the divine surgeon, he must intervene and he must perform a spiritual heart surgery. That's what the Bible says. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet uh, prophesies of what God will do. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, everyone wondered how this was going to happen. And it wasn't until Jesus in the New Testament where Jesus picked this up and he answers it. Just as Ezekiel stressed the centrality of the heart, so does Jesus in John chapter 7. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this. If you trust in me as your greatest and ultimate hope in life, if you trust in me for all your brokenness and all your regrets and all your failures and all your mistakes, you're not going to only receive a grace and forgiveness and a transfer of my righteousness to you, right? That, that will cover your brokenness and shame and sin. And, and imagine that. You know, you know, when we go to work, we're always looking for acceptance and approval. Of who? In these imperfect, broken people. But God is saying, if you trust in me, before a holy, perfect God, you have acceptance and approval. But he's saying, you not only have that objectively, he's saying subjectively, you're going to experience a new power. He says, you're going to experience a new love, a new grace, a new peace in your heart. Not behavior, not circumstances, friends. The heart, the heart, the heart, you must search out. And not just once or once in a while, but man, because we are so prone to wander constantly, resiliently, the heart must be sought out. Because we hear this on Sunday and what happens on Wednesday. No problems, right? We don't struggle with anger anymore. We don't struggle with pride or lust or envy or discontentment or ingratitude. No, of course not. We are prone to wander. And so in the objective sense, you know, our heart is saved in an instant. We're forgiven. We're revived. And, and you may maybe remember the first time you were saved or maybe you experienced that every now and then. But in another sense, the new heart that we have objectively is not subjectively fully worked out into our life, right? In the, in the, in the way we think and, and how we act and, and what we say, what, how we live. And um, I have this quote up here. It's a little long by, by Paul Tripp, who's an author and counselor. And, and, but I want to, I'm just going to read it because I couldn't summarize it. So I'm just going to read it for you. This is what he writes when he talks about our hearts. 
He says, never a day goes by when we do not fail to do what Christ has enabled us to do. Despite the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, through our union with Christ, sin still remains in us. We should not be shocked, therefore, that the war still rages inside us. We have been empowered, but we have not yet been perfected. But what do you do when you sin and fail? Do you excuse and rationalize, or do you wallow in self-defeating guilt and regret? Because the cross calls you away from both responses. It gives you the freedom to admit your sin in turn. The cross gives you the freedom to receive forgiveness each time you fail. We do not have to carry the sins Christ took on himself. It is impossible for your sin to shock the one who died for it. He paid the price we could not pay so that we would never have to pay it again. So when you fail, keep Jesus and his work in view. Run to your Lord, not away from him. In your heart, receive his forgiveness again and again. Get back up and follow him once more, knowing that each time you fail, you can experience your identity as one for whom Christ died. Each failure reminds us of why he had to die. Each confession reminds us of the forgiveness that only the cross could provide. Friends, this is the power of the gospel, which is the power of the cross. It's a forgiving power. It's a freeing power. It's a loving power. It's a humbling power. It's a hopeful power. It's a regenerating, reviving, renewing power. It's a persistent power. It's an I've got nothing left power. It's a glorious power. It's the only power that is victorious in the end. It is the power of the gospel. Risen, this is my prayer for our church. That we wouldn't be so obsessed with outward appearance and forms and behavior modification. And I tell you this as one who struggles with that. I've got books and lists and, I don't know, podcasts, all the same, whatever, you know. It's all just same stuff. And I forget that it's my heart, not my mind, my heart that needs to be spiritually transformed by Jesus. Right, every Sunday... Every community group, every, uh, you know, act that you do, interaction, conversation, prayer, behavior modification has less than a snowball's chance in Death Valley to transform us. What we need is an act of God. We need heart transformation. This is why, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You cannot change your behavior, but I can change your heart. So learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you finally understand that passage now? So friends, come to him today. Come to the divine surgeon and rest and let him work on your heart. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we come before you and it's a new year, but we are thankful that your gospel is the same every single day. And I pray that, you know, in the new year, I know we all got these behavior modifications resolutions but I pray Father that you would capture our heart you would capture our heart today and every single day we would know that it is our hearts that are prone to wander away from your love away from your grace away from the 
eternal perfection of heaven, away from your mission, your call to love each other and to forgive each other, to pray for each other, to consider the broken, the outcasts, the poor and the widows and the orphans in our communities. It's so easy to be consumed with what the blessed life and whatever we're watching or whatever we'll listen to preaches to us. But you say, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the land, word of, the word of God stands forever. And though every man and woman be a liar of the gospel, you do not lie, you are true. So would you give us light again? And would you build in us a community and relationships that would seek out each other's hearts, that wouldn't shame each other because of behaviors or whatnot, but would search each other's heart out like you search our hearts out. And in that act, would you bless it with your spirit to do things that we cannot do, do things that every man and every philosopher and every woman has contemplated throughout the beginning of time, that is how to be blessed. Father, would you do this? In your son's name we pray, amen.